James chapter 1. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Amen. 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 Lord bless the reading of His Word. Heavenly Father, please help us now as we learn from Your Word. Help us to be attentive to the voice of Your Holy Spirit speaking through it. And help us to honor this as Your Word. May nothing that I say um, uh, uh, disrupt or distract from the teaching of Scripture. But may it all be consistent and faithful and such as would please and honor you and lead your people in the paths of righteousness. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. James tells us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. And as the letter of James progresses, it's fair to say that it is structured in many ways around the trials of various kinds that we as Christians are likely to meet. The various things that will afflict us, the various things that will attack us, the various things that will disrupt us. Now, one thing that's important to to note when he is talking about trials of various kinds, you may justifiably read any number of trials into that statement. Uh, We we may immediately think uh, of persecution. James is talking uh, uh, to early Christians at a time when they would have been persecuted for their faith. But what is interesting is the trials that he, he structures this letter by are not the trials so much that come from without but the trials that come from within, uh, the trials that we uh, manufacture, the trials that we find ourselves uh, creating and cultivating, um, these manufactured crises that um, uh, blow up sometimes because we have engineered the very thing that does blow up in our face. So there's trials of various kinds, and yes, there's plenty to be said about the things that afflict us from outside and affect us from outside. But James has um, uh, other things that, that, that it, it, it's not located simply with someone else, but it's stuff that affects us very closely, very personally, that, that hits us in different ways. And um, uh, particularly if you're thinking about James as a book of wisdom literature, which is how you're supposed to view it. For example, um, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament is a book of wisdom literature. You might say that James is the Christological answer to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is talking about meaning, searching for meaning in life below the sun, underneath the sun. And he concludes that, that life is vanity of vanities. Um, uh, some might uh, translate that more accurately, vapor of vapors, mist of mist. It's stuff that you're grabbing hold of or trying to grab hold of, but it eludes your grasp. And uh, he, he, he just throws his hands up and doesn't really know what to do. He's trying to pursue um, uh, work, so he pours himself into various projects. He's not satisfied. Wisdom, but wisdom of the world. So he writes lots of books. He studies lots of books, but he finds that as no sooner as he finished the books that there's more that have been published and he just can't stay on top of the stack. Um, He, uh, um, uh, even in his own writing, he, he has... 
you know, there's just this sense of he's done a lot, but maybe he has some sort of imposter syndrome type of thing. Like, who am I to be writing all of this stuff? It's, it's, it's futile. It's meaningless. It's pointless. It, uh, under the sun. Um, what, what is the end of it? He um, um, spends a lot of time with women. And um, uh, this, this, this guy is, you know, um, very much a ladies' man. And uh, yet he finds himself very dissatisfied with that. Um, in fact, he, he's just confused. Uh, he's, I really actually don't know what I've gotten myself into with all of this. Uh, and then wine. He plants vineyards and he, um, he drinks their produce and distributes it, but it's just it, it's not satisfying to him. And so he has to look above the sun. Throughout Ecclesiastes, he's talking about life under the sun, but he has to look above the sun. So the last chapter says, remember your creator in the days of your youth and concludes the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God, God, and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Similarly, James has a lot to say about life under the sun. Although he does not use that expression as such, there, there, there is definitely a, a distinction between life here below and the way we generally try to live life and the way we generally try to interact with the situations we face in life and wisdom from above. Life here below brings trials. He says, count it all joy when you face trials. Life here below brings trials. What is our hope? What is our answer? Wisdom from above. That's how we can handle the trials. That's how we can manage and cope with the, the trials. So bear those things in mind. And this evening, I want to, to walk us through James. Uh, we'll probably do a fair amount of simply reading, but um, I, I hope that this will encourage you and um, equip you for life here below with wisdom from above and uh, might prompt you to deeper reading and study of this great letter of Scripture. If you think of, uh, of trials, um, you might think of obstacles. You might think of various challenges. Uh, there, there, you, you, perhaps you, you think of obstacle courses. Maybe you've done an obstacle course. I know Charles has done the, uh, the Tough Mudder before. Um, uh, I've done the Bear Grylls Survival Run before. And I, uh, I came across the photos of that uh, a, a few, uh, a, yeah, I think a few days ago. And uh, I see my, my brother Reagan looking very sort of stern and um, uh, myself looking very stern and we're holding up our dog tags that we were presented with at the end and just looking very hard, you know, tough guys. And um, uh, the reality is uh, Reagan did quite well. I think he probably came in second or third overall and I survived. It is called the, the Bear Grylls Survival Run. I survived. That was the achievement. Everyone's a winner so long as you make it out on the other side. Uh, it was quite um, a distressing experience uh, at various points, very humiliating. Uh, but you might think of that. Um, I, I like things like that because they're tangible, they're active, they're meaningful. I'm not dissing video games, but you might think of video games on the other hand. You know, you, maybe that's one way you relax. And uh, I, you know, I've never been much of a, a video game player, but I know enough to know you, you work your way through the levels. At the end of each level, it's difficult. And you, it, it's, uh, forgive me if I don't know the exact terminology, but you know, you have the level and then you have, you, you know, it's like a cluster of levels almost and you get through the level and then there's a boss, right? And you, you know, if it's that kind of game and, and some monster descends out of the sky and you know, your little spaceship or, can tell the type of games I've, I've played, but you know, this tentacled beast comes out of the air and your little spaceship, you're sort of trying to move it around and the little blips are coming out of it. And um, uh, you know, you, you try and find its weak spots, you fail, you go back, you think you figured out the weak spot and you play. So, so each time it gets worse, the boss gets bigger and, and faster and um, you're always the same. 
you're not growing or developing really that much in the game. Maybe you're learning how to outmaneuver, but trials of various kinds come and you're still the same person. And maybe as you progress spiritually, you might, you might actually in spiritual things might be a bit stronger, but in many ways you will feel weaker. With each obstacle of the survival run I did, um, uh, I, I felt weaker, not stronger. The only time I felt strong was when I saw the finish line in sight and got a burst of energy to get it over and done with. Um, when, when you're playing that, that video game mentally by the end of it, you know, you're just sort of zoned out and you're just, you know, I think you're probably ready to get the game over with, to beat the game as it were. In the spiritual Christian life, as we weather the different trials, we may feel weary. Um, we may begin to lose it a bit. We may struggle. Uh, but there is hope. What kind of trials will you face? What are the obstacles that you'll have to face in the Christian life? What are the, um, the bosses that you'll have to uh, deal with or overcome? Well, chapter 1 introduces us to the winds of doubt. We've already read verse 2, which talks about um, trials of various kinds and specifically says that they're, they're testing your faith. If we go to verse 6, there's greater clarity because he, he talks about asking for God from God for wisdom. I'll come back to that in a moment. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So if you're going to God and you're, you're praying, you're saying the right words, but you don't really believe that He is able, you don't really believe that He will answer, you don't really believe that He will you know, keep His word, or that that even if it's not a matter of His promises, that you're asking for something from Him, particularly as He guides us to, to ask for wisdom, and you don't believe that He's actually going to help you in this situation, and He's not going to guide you, and He's not going to illuminate your, your, your mind, that's doubt. And He says you're like a wave. The winds of doubt blow in, and they, they make it very difficult for us to cope both with our failures and our successes. So when you get to verses 9 through 11, you have presented a common theme through James, a lowly brother and a rich brother. And it, 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 he says um, that the lowly brother boasts in his exalta exaltation and the rich should boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And the, the material things of this world and our response to either gain or loss demonstrates the substance of our faith and often reveals the doubts that we have. When we are lowly, do we believe that God is able to provide? Do we believe that God equips us with the faculties uh, to, to, to overcome need uh, through industry and hard work and acumen? Do we believe that, that, that God gives us wisdom, not just that kind of um, work type uh, insight, but, but deep wisdom as to how to steward Yes, our poverty, but also how to steward our riches. The response that we take to poverty or to wealth, one or the other, abundance or need, reveals whether we are believing in God or whether we doubt Him. The winds of doubt. 
But not only do we see the winds of doubt, we also see the seduction of desire. If we overcome doubt and its winds blowing us about, or at least seeking to, there is this temptress on the other side. Reading from verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt with the, sorry, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Desire beckoning to us, telling us that we want what she has to offer, selling us a bill of goods. And so we give in. And our union with desire, according to the text, produces sin. And sin grows up to bring death. Verse 15, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. How does it conceive? Unless there is a union of us with desire. Gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I remember seeing a, um, a cinematic portrayal of the old Anglo-Saxon myth Beowulf. As far as a faithful representation of the Anglo-Saxon myth is concerned, it was appalling. But as far as a, a demonstration of this principle, it was quite thoughtful, probing, even excellent uh, when it comes to the, 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 the parable that it portrays. Um, Beowulf is uh, enticed by this uh, demonic entity, uh, this shape-shifting woman, and um, it's one of those, you know, and it's sort of a weird CGI animation film, and then, you know, they're having a chat in the cave, and then the screen cuts, and you fill in the blanks. Uh, some unchaste activity seems to have taken place, and um, next thing you know, years down the line, a dragon is breathing out fire across the land and is destroying it. And he discovers that this dragon is the offspring of his union with this wicked, uh, shape-shifting monster creature that he thought was just a woman. Yeah, it's quite disturbing. Um, and he dies. He dies to kill the dragon. But it's not that heroic. There's a scene towards the, the, the end where he contemplates the death of the age of heroes. And he says the Christ God has killed it. We're just men. We're just mortals. The day of heroes is gone. And he's approaching things from a thoroughly pagan perspective. But he's actually speaking great truth. Before the gospel of Christ was proclaimed, people thought themselves as something. Before people in that context were believing in Jesus in mass, they elevated false gods idols and pursued wickedness and godlessness on all parts and this gives way to to sin certainly with in that story this man thought he was powerful he thought he was something he's proud he's great he's mighty but he falls to seduction He's slain monsters and beasts and is the first to announce it. I mean, it's, he, he, he really believes he is something. And by the end of it, when faced with a peasant who's about to, to um, die, he takes his armor off and he urges the man to kill him. 
because he can't live with himself. The seduction of desire is powerful, but desire is from within, he says. We've already given it a room in our lives. And desire, when we are united with desire, produces sin because desire conceives sin and sin is given birth, they give birth to sin and then death. And the scriptures tell us the wages of sin is death. What can we expect? For our momentary fling with sin, we, we, we sell our soul. We sell uh, all that we believe, all that we are, all that we hold dear, all that we profess for but a moment. That's another trial that we must face. And don't, like the legend that was Beowulf, think that you are impregnable, that you've slain monsters and beasts, that surely you will withstand when tempted. In fact, if you're honest, you know you've already fallen. Keep going. The stain of the world. Get past winds of doubt. Get past the seduction of desire. And there is this, this, this stain that stings deeply. Um, uh, he uses the language of filthiness. Rampant wickedness, verse 19. Sorry, verse 21. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. But... Um, what does he have in mind? Now, I, I, I have just um, alluded to a story involving sexual immorality. And oftentimes when people think of filthiness, that is where their mind goes. That's, at least in the English language, the most common thing that we could pair it with, I suppose. But perhaps we are betraying our, our presuppositions at that point. Because actually the surrounding text does not speak so much of that as it does, well, that definitely is displeasing to God, as it does uh, anger, the anger of man. That's the immediate context. Know this, verse 19 says, My beloved brothers, let each person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then he says, put away all filthiness. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word able to save your souls. So anger stains in the same way that any other sin stains. The context he's addressing relates to anger. And apparently, it seems as you read James, you'll see that was a common thing. The, the things people said and why they said them and how they said them and all of that stuff. Um, uh, anger itself, as I've preached before, is not in and of itself a sin. In fact, we are told, I believe commanded by the Apostle Paul to be angry. But we are also told, sin not. Be angry, sin not. There are some things that you need to be angry about. There are some things that you must be angry about. But the sort of things that he's describing here, he uses the language of filthiness, a stain upon us. And surely we are all guilty. You know, the stain continues um, uh, because he, he talks in chapter 2 about um, another thing that defiles, another thing that is filthy, and that is partiality. Uh, and, and notice the story that he, he speaks of in chapter 2. A man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Filthiness that we must put away. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world 
to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Now here is the unfortunate thing. I know countless individuals who if I start talking about anything special related to the poor will accuse me of partiality because I'm talking about caring for the poor. Well, can't you care about the rich? Don't the rich have things that you need to, to care about? That you need to... And it's just such, such a nonsensical argument. And then they'll, they'll, they'll claim it's partiality because, oh, my emphasis is on the poor. Friends, the rich are already up here. The poor are down here. Looking after the poor is simply bringing them up to where they need to be. So, so I, I mean, the, the, the rich already have it together, as James seems to, to indicate. There's also a lot of sin, and uh, God is actually not only going to lift the poor, but he's also going to bring down the rich. We see it in the text. I do not have to consult, nor have I consulted, any radical leftist political thinkers to come up with my conclusions about how God feels about wealth inequities and the way people treat each other differently on the basis of various man-made constructs of class and race and the whole lot that people categorize people with. Partiality is filthy and it is against God. And by addressing those who are victims of a partial system and partial individuals, that is not partiality. The rich don't need a food bank. The poor do. I don't think we have to worry too much about whether the, the rich have a comfortable seat in the church. But it's the poor in the context that James is addressing who are being marginalized. We have to grapple with these things, uh, not least because our filthiness the stain of the world that he's saying is, is a trial that we're going to face, a difficulty that we're going to have to deal with, tempts us, marries up with desire, and seeks to draw us into deflective, self-justifying attitudes and words that actually further compound the partiality of the world around us and only serve to uphold the status quo of a sinful, filthy world that desperately needs the cleansing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. James says, you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Do we see how, how this stains us? Or how it at least is a trial that has the potential to stain us, to treat other people in such a distasteful, in fact, despicable way. He says, put it all away. Put away all filthiness. And the two examples that leap off the pages of this text are anger and partiality. And I hate to say it. It grieves me to say it. But I see anger and partiality in Reformed evangelicalism. And let's be more precise. Reformed Baptist evangelicalism. And maybe it's just because that's the circles I move in. But I see it and hear it more in our circles publicly, visibly, than in other Christian circles. You can disagree. I wish you would disagree with me, actually. I wish you could prove me wrong on that. But the Scriptures would have us, whatever label we want to fall under or whatever flag we put on, we, the, the Scriptures call us to lies of humility. 
before God. That cleanse us. That propel us out to serve others. To love others as ourselves. There's no need to be angry with your neighbor unduly. There's, there, there's no need to be prejudiced or partial to further beat down the downtrodden. In the stain of the world. Do we look like the culture around us or do we look like Christ? And then there's the grave of inactivity. Keep going. Chapter 2. Um, still verse 14 through 26. That whole portion uh, talks about uh, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. So you've made it past the winds of doubt. You've, you, you've gotten past the seduction of desire. You've gotten through the stain of the world. But here's the grave of inactivity. Watch lest you fall into it. Lest you think that mere intellectual assent to the teachings of the Christian faith is enough that you don't have to live differently, that you don't have to think differently, speak differently, act differently, work. And this has created, a, 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 a again, because of all of these other things that I've already talked about, we deal with this constantly in church life, and we get to this point and we're already dead. We've already fallen at each of these points. Under the law, we have transgressed. We are guilty. But we get to this point and we, we have churches that are little more than preaching stations where people come in and they go out, they hear a message that they consume, generally from one man, but um, it could be multiple people. They could have a nice, very healthy plurality of elders across the board, lots of different people preaching and teaching, but they, and they're benefiting from that, they're consuming that, but then they go out and just live their life, totally detached from the fellowship of believers and detached from impact in their community. Read Acts chapter 2 again, the end of Acts chapter 2. And you read of a church that was day by day making an impact on those around it. So even outsiders looked and they said, everyone was amazed. I like the way the CSB puts it, um, Christian Standard Bible. I think it says, everyone stood in awe. Brothers and sisters, when, the, when, when our local community considers the work of this local church, do they stand in awe? Don't think that we need to have numbers for them to stand in awe. They will only stand in awe of what's going on here if they look in and they see people who stand in awe of God. And when you are amazed by God, when you are in awe of God, and, 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 and you're amazed by His glory and His awesomeness and His power, and you really have faith, James says that that faith will propel you to work. And he uses the word justification a bit differently from Paul, lest you're stumbling over that, because he does later say, if you've read ahead, um, that a person is justified, verse 24, by works and not by faith alone. He's using justification not in the sense of our positional relationship before God. Paul does that. Galatians, you're justified by faith, he says very clearly. It is by faith that you're justified, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But here James says something that would seem to contradict if you realize they're addressing different people, different contexts, using the same word differently. Makes sense. Justification, Paul's talking about our relationship with God in Christ. You are declared righteous before God by grace, the unmerited favor and love of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Can we agree on that? And you're justified by works. James is saying, what is he saying? You, you, your faith is vindicated by your works. It is proven by your works. Nobody wants to see you going on and on about your faith 
when your life tells another story. Be very careful. Because I think sometimes Christians think that, oh, you know, we're going to go out and preach the gospel and we're going to win souls for Jesus and we're going to go out and, you know, just be, be warriors of God proclaiming the gospel. And that, that is our works. Because sometimes that's, that's people think works. Oh, it must be evangelism. That's not the context here. Just the general way of life. The overall way of life. How you treat people. What you say and how you say it. How you respect authority. How you interact and, and care, uh, interact with and care for those who are lowly and poor and in need and marginalized in some way. The way that you um, um, live your life communicates, it does preach a sermon. Because if you're saying one thing about Jesus, but your life is telling a different story, you're offending Jesus because it reflects badly not only on you, but on Him, unfortunately. He doesn't deserve that. He talks about people earlier who say, go be warmed and filled. Yeah, go be warmed and filled. And they're hungry. They're naked. You, you send them on their way with a priestly blessing. Because we believe in the priesthood of believers, right? Be warmed and filled. But you've not given them food. And you've not given them clothing. It sends a bad message. It, it communicates nothing other than, I don't really know that this person really cares about me. To be sure, living a life of spiritual activity means you have to get messy. Yeah? You can't run without breaking a sweat. I mean, that'd be weird if, if you did. Um, there might be a condition out there. <laughs> I don't know. Run, you break a sweat. Work out, you break a sweat. Do the Tough mutter. You're caked in mud and water and all of this grass stains and just everything that you'll encounter. You're filthy from the, from the, the fight, from the race. Not filthy in the sense that he says, put it all away, the sinful sense, but you're running to minister to people, to help people. And while you're with them, you're proclaiming Christ to them, but you're interacting with difficult situations, sensitive situations, hard situations. You have to be patient. You have to, to be kind. You have to be genuinely compassionate. You have to wrestle with all sorts of, of things that, that you, you might not normally have thought of. You, you have to consider how you're going to approach ministering to people in, in different ways. and It's very engaged, very active. But according to James, it's a glorious thing because it demonstrates your faith. It proves your faith. You join the ranks of men like like Abraham. Abraham, our father, was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Doesn't look great. But there he is, son tied up on the altar, and he's ready to go through with it, Hebrews says, because he believed that God could raise him from the dead if he had to. He knew that God would keep his promise. And so he took it right up to as, as far as he could, and God stopped him. Rahab, this woman was a prostitute. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works 
when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. That's not the sort of woman you would expect to be commended by a man who's just said, put away all filthiness. And yet, this woman is commended here and elsewhere for her faith. Her life was spared for her faith. We got to move on. The fire of the tongue, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, talks about um, uh, how, how we cannot control our tongue, um, how, how it's like a, a fire. Um, verse 5, how, so also the tongue is a small member of your body, but it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. He talks about all these animals and creatures and beasts, untamable things, wild things that we can tame if we work on it. But he says you can't tame the tongue. It's a restless evil filled with deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord our Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And yet they are so. How are you going to face the fire of the tongue? And then finally, really from chapter 3, verse 13, all the way to the end, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 6, this, this final boss, if you will, this final great obstacle, we might visualize as a two-headed demon of sorts. Uh, jealousy and selfish ambition. He says, verse 14 of chapter 3, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And the, really the rest of, of the book is dealing with things like, like that. Quarrels and fights are caused by these things. Passions at war within us. Desire for things that we don't have and can't have. So we murder. Co coveting. Um, and, and yet we cannot obtain. So we fight and we quarrel. We don't have because we don't ask. And if we ask, we, we do not receive because we've asked wrongly to spend it on our passions. As the first part of chapter 4 says he decries us as adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us verse 7 says submit yourselves therefore to God Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But there's this problem in verse 11 that continues. I mean, it, he, he's just continuing to lay it out there. Do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And so I hope you see all of this is leading to a point. In fact, this, this sort of two-headed demon of jealousy and selfish ambition kind of brings together the full force of all of those other trials. The winds of doubt, the seduction of desire, the stain of the world, the grave of inactivity, the fire of the tongue. And they're all married up in this this demon of jealousy and selfish ambition that combines to destroy us. It leads to friendship with the world. It leads to pride. It leads to speaking evil against and about our brothers. It leads to boasting about tomorrow. At the end of chapter 4, selfish ambition, today or tomorrow, I'm going to do this, that, and the other. And, and no, you don't have a clue what you're going to do tomorrow. 
He says, you boast in your arrogance. Chapter 5, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. It talks about the utter vanity and rot of the material things that lead us away from, from the gospel of Jesus Christ and from faithfulness to Him. Now, I've spent a, a, a lengthy time telling you about the trials that we face because I want to be realistic. And I hope that you see, you know, I've, in a space like tonight, a length like tonight, it's difficult to um, speak adequately to every application, but I hope you got the gist of it. And that you see the trials that we face are not out there simply. They are there. But the trials that we deal with are within our hearts first. They're within this room. And they're the way that we conduct ourselves one with another to each other. And the way we handle um, various crises and situations. The way that we um, uh, deal with brothers and sisters. And the reasons behind all of that. That's life here below. But James isn't only about that. James is also about wisdom from above. And so I want to leave you this evening with a message of encouragement that for every trial, God gives us enough to overcome it. So the winds of doubt, God gives wisdom for doubters. Verse 5 of chapter 1, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And, and, and that wisdom is exactly that which leads, verse 9, to a mature approach to material things. So verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And then he talks about the fleetingness of material things. Only wisdom reveals that. Leads us to find our ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in right relationship with God and Jesus Christ. So you, you face the, the temptress uh, of, of desire, the seduction of um, desire. God gives hope and help to the tempted. Verse 12 of chapter 1. What is our hope? When. when, when, when we are tempted when desire within lures and entices us and gives uh, conception and birth to sin. <sighs> Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The question you must ask yourself in those moments when you are tempted by desire is do I love God more than this desire? More than this thing that's tempting me? The desire is there. The desire beckons. But do you hear the voice of Jesus louder? Do you see the glory and the beauty and the attractiveness of God more than the lure of sin? It goes back to the garden, doesn't it? God said. But what God said, we rejected, we rebelled against that because we were entranced by the, the, the beauty, the attractiveness, the edibility of a fruit. When we are stained or when we are faced with the stain of the world and, and we're maybe trying to deal with the stains that we carry or we're surrounded by a world that would pollute us, God gives His Word to wash us. So chapter 1, verse 21 says... Was, sorry, uh, turn to the wrong chapter. Therefore put away all filthiness. Chapter 121, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Receive with meekness. What? The implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. Elsewhere in Scripture, the Word is referred to, the, the Word's work is referred to as a cleansing work. And Jesus Christ washes the church with the water of the Word. 
So the things that, that stain us, we can be washed. We, we can be cleansed because of His Word. It washes us. It cleanses us. Chapter 2, uh, verse 8, further to that, that, that point. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. When the stain of the world has led you into anger or partiality, Scripture washes it away with a message. Love your neighbor as yourself. It shows us the way. The muck on our eyes it cleanses that off and shows us how we are to interact. What, what about the grave of inactivity? God gives righteousness to the actively believing. And so verses 22 through 26 of, of, of chapter 2 uh, talk about Abraham who was justified, uh, that is, vindicated. by His faith was vindicated by works when he offered his son up on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says... Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. How do we know that Abraham believed God? Not simply because he said he believed in God, but because he obeyed God. And therefore, it was counted to him as righteousness. His, his life lived out fruit, bore fruit. We see similarly as we progress through the uh, that, that, that text. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. Verse 26, the, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. But God gives righteousness to those who actively believe, who know what God says and do, and do it. Uh, God gives fatherly warnings to those with uncontrolled tongues. Notice the, the, the fatherly care of chapter 3, verses 1 uh, and, and following. He's warning of danger. Now, many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James is a teacher. And there are other people who want to be teachers. And what does he do? You can't handle it. Uh, it's not for you, son. You, you know, it's not, it's not your line of work. Let me steer you in a different direction. This sort of spiritual career advice, as it were, that a father might give to, to, to the son, just thinking aloud about things that he wants to do, um, and, and some of it might not be that great. Uh, warning him. Talking about fire, you, those with children, you warn your, your children about dangerous objects, things that could be a, uh, an uncovered electrical socket. It could be the hob when you're in the kitchen cooking or the oven, um, grill door when it's open. It could be um, uh, the, the stairs. Certainly, if you have a, uh, any fire type of thing going on, you're going to guard your children closely. And he warns them about the fire of the tongue. God gives us these, not because he, he, he wants to hinder us or harm us in some way. He gives these things as a, as a father would warn a child so that that child does not harm themselves or harm others. And finally, when you're facing the two-headed demon of jealousy and selfish ambition, God gives grace to the humble you know, it's easy for us to, when we face that, that creature, to fall into the trap. It wants us to respond in kind. It wants us to elevate ourselves with pride and power and 
but God gives grace to the humble. Chapter 3, verse 16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice, but the wisdom from above. Always, God gives the antidote. God gives the solution. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Verse 6 of chapter 4 says, But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So you do be strong. Sometimes people think meekness or humility is about backing down. It's not. But it's saying there is someone higher and greater than this two-headed demon that's after me. And I am submitted to him. And I will do his will and I will proclaim his word. And I will, I, I will seek to be a peacemaker. I will seek to be someone who loves the Lord and, 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 and simply seeks to love him and serve him and care for his people. I'm not going to get involved in all of the mess and politics of selfish ambition and jealousy which can afflict the church. God gives grace to the humble. So he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And you're like, oh, that's a bit harsh. I don't want to do that. But he's doing this for your good. He's saying, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Because sometimes it's the proud and the aggressive and the, 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 the fiery and the destructive and the divisive who also, in their pride, just coast their way through life with a bunch of laughs. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Now's not the time for jokes. Now's the time for Jesus. And see Him, the Savior who died on the cross for the very sins that you commit. And be sobered. Be humbled. You don't have to um, tap into some sort of performance enhancing drug to succeed in this race. You don't even have to, I mean, that morning I did the survival run, big mistake. I don't know what I was thinking. I drank coffee for caffeine. Shouldn't have done that. It didn't hydrate me. I drank oatmeal. It sat on my chest. I had a donut. I thought the carbs might be good. It all just, just ruined me, wrecked me. I learned the hard way. I had to pull over to the side and got well sick. People thought that this being a Saturday morning, I'd had a um, bit of a crazy night. The night before, spiritually, sometimes we do have to kind of pull over to the side and throw out all the stuff of the world and just breathe in the fresh, pure air of the Holy Spirit to run the race with endurance. But hopefully we can, we can learn now there are certain things that are unhelpful. There are certain things that hinder us. And we can go to the, the one who actually will help us without too many issues along the way. That'd be nice. That's what God's word is for. You don't have to, you know, trade in various objects at some sort of digital store to get, you know, your weapons kitted out and you have to, you know, you collect coins and points and all of that to trade in for extra strength and bonus. No. Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, it's yours now for the taking. Um, to focus on what James says, wisdom. And we have 
not only wisdom as an abstract idea for our intellect, we have wisdom as an embodied reality, eternal wisdom made flesh in Jesus Christ. If we go to him and we ask him for wisdom as we face the trials of life, he will help us. He will be with us. He will guide us. And Lord willing, we will learn how to handle and cope with life here below as we constantly are drawing on wisdom from above. May the Lord help us in this for his glory and according to his grace.